Well, this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 18. So I want to invite you to turn to John 18. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through uh, the gospel of John. And we're coming into this point in the book where Jesus is about to be crucified. And last week, we saw how in his darkest hour, when it seemed that Jesus' enemies were getting the best of him, Jesus maintained absolute sovereign control over every detail of the situation. And that theme's going to continue as we go on. Remember, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. But the amazing thing is that even when he's doing that, and Eric did such a good job of pulling this out, that he, in surrendering, he's exercising a sovereign surrender, and he never ceases to be the eternal incarnate word, second person of the Trinity, upholding the universe by the word of his power. I mean, it is really astounding to think about. So he's arrested, and he's bound in chains, and he's taken to Annas, who's kind of a high priest emeritus, to the current high priest Caiaphas, which we'll hear about um, later, not, not in today's text, but further down. So we're going to pick up the story here in chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 15. John 18, 15. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then set him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your eternal word that stands forever. Though everything else around us fades and falls, this word stands forever. And we want this word this morning to feed our hearts and souls, just as Joshua prayed, God, that you would grow our courage, Lord, where we're feeling weak, that you would instill strength in our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see the beauty and glory of Jesus in the midst of our failings and wanderings and denials and everything that we are not but we should be, may we see the all-sufficiency of Jesus. Help us to see that this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I just want to begin by 
inviting you to imagine the scene that's before us. Jesus has just been arrested. He's going to the high priest for questioning. It's the wee hours of the morning. It's still dark outside. It's cold. It's springtime, but it's cold enough to need a fire just to keep warm. Now, Peter, and it says another disciple. I thought very likely that's John himself who's writing this. Uh, And there's several reasons why I think that's probably John that I won't go into right now. But we're going to say Peter and John are following Jesus. And another gospel writer tells us, um, actually all the other gospel writers tell us, they were following him at a distance. So they get there. Jesus goes in. John's able to go in because verse 15 tells us he was known to the high priest. But Peter was denied entrance, and he's left waiting outside. So John realizes this, and a lot of hustle and bustle, and where's Peter? Oh, so he goes back to the door, and he talks to the girl who's at the door, and she's, she's working the door that night, that morning, and he goes to her to get Peter in. So this is the scene that's unfolding before us. So he, he walks up, and, you know, he's hey, by the way, I've got a buddy, he's outside, and um, he's just dying to see what's about to go on down in here. So is there any way you could just let him in too? I know, I know, you know, she probably knew he was a follower of Jesus because he was known to the high priest, but he's, he's trying to get Peter in. And, you know, maybe this servant girl rolled, his, rolled her eyes. Maybe she's, oh my gosh, stop. And I have to let somebody else come in. Come on. And, and John continues. Look, I know the high priest will be cool with it. Many scholars actually think that John's family, the Zebedee family, went far back with the high priest. So there's family ties. John's the guy with connections. He's telling the servant girl, look, it's going to be fine. I'm here. He's with me. The high priest is going to be fine with it. Maybe the high priest says, it's true. Just let, give John whatever he wants. Let him in. That's fine. And John's like, thanks, HP. So is it okay if he can come in? And finally, the girl says, sure, fine, just let him in. But as he's walking in, the light from the fire, another gospel writer tells us, illumines his face. And as he walks by, I imagine Peter throwing on his first century hoodie and keeping his head down, but she recognizes him. Hey, wait a second. Aren't you one of his disciples? She actually asked it in the form of negative. You're not one of his disciples too, are you? Almost with irritation. Not another one. It's bad enough I had to let John in because he has special connections to the high priest. But now there's going to be two of y'all? What are you going to do? Are you, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? So that's the scene that gets set up for us. And we're going to return to this scene in just a moment and unpack it because what happens next is both sobering and it's glorious. John, the way he arranges this material under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has arranged a story differently than all the other writers. All the other writers put the three denials together and they they give us Peter denied him three times. Here it is. But John interrupts the denials with a scene of what's happening with Jesus. It's like in a movie when the camera keeps cutting back and forth between two scenes to make the point that while this thing was going on over here, this thing was going on over here. Now that's important. Why is that important? Because I think John is trying to draw out a contrast for us, which really provides the whole point of this passage. 
And I can't state it any better than Bruce Milne has stated it. Uh, this is in your notes. As Jesus testifies faithfully, Peter denies pathetically. Another writer, Raymond Brown, writes, John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. So as we look at Peter's denials this morning, and we will look at that and spend time at that, what I hope we see most is Jesus. Because the Jesus we're going to see in this narrative is for the Peter that we see in this narrative. And this Jesus is for the Peters who are here today as well. This Jesus, as we see him in the passage, in fact, is for anyone who knows what it is to portray courage and strength only to fail over and over again, or to feel weak and hopeless and confused, or to look back at a time in your life when you, f- you, you were following hard after Jesus, but to survey the current landscape of your life only to find out there's not much left to show for it now. The Jesus in this passage is for those who may feel confused because things are not turning out the way you expected. Certainly something Peter was familiar with in this narrative. And as things don't turn out the way you expected, maybe you're just not handling it too well either. Maybe you feel trapped by your own sins and failures. This Jesus is for those who may feel so beaten down by those failures that it just seems like nothing around you will change until you can get your act together and that pressure feels almost impossible to bear. This is who Jesus is for this morning. Any of these categories are categories where Peter is just living his life right now and maybe some of us are as well. It's also for anyone who wonders if they're past the point of no return in Jesus. Now, I'm going to exercise restraint not to jump ahead to John 21, but we know where the story goes, right? Where Jesus restores Peter beautifully, wonderfully. But what I I really want you to see, what I I think the Holy Spirit wants us to see, is that this Jesus is for you. And we'll see him in this passage being everything that Peter's not and everything that Peter needs to be but keeps failing to be. What we should do, what should we do when we see Jesus that way? Well, is the answer to just, well, we need to do better. We need to try harder. We need to make sure we don't deny him. Well, I mean, yes, we should make sure we do not deny him, but I don't think that's the primary thrust of this passage. Anytime we see Jesus' all-sufficiency laid next to our own failures and sins and lacks, the first thing it draws out of us, the first thing it summons us to do is to cast ourselves on his never-ending mercy. And I think that's the point of this narrative. Stitched together the way John does is to make that point. That Jesus is everything we are not and everything that we need. And so we cast ourselves on his mercy in our failings. That's the main point. So we'll look at the courtyard scene with Peter and honestly examine his failures and ours. And then we'll look at the trial of Jesus and see how he's accomplishing our salvation and continuing to exercise sovereign control as he lays down his life, being for us what we need and can never be on our own. How we need that Jesus this morning, don't we? 
So let's look at this. The, the first point, just a two-point sermon. I'm breaking up the scenes, um, and we're going to examine them together in part. So the first part, the hot and cold of Peter's witness. Now, Peter has got to be one of the most dynamic characters in all the Bible, and I love the guy. In John 13, 37, he's the one who said, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. To which Jesus says, actually, you're going to deny me three times. Then a rooster will crow to remind you that I told you that you would deny me three times. And mind you, Jesus is not just predicting the future when he says that. He's not boxing Peter into an inevitable outcome that Peter can't change in some fatalistic sense. No, Jesus was actually helping Peter to see that there's something going on with you, Peter. There, I'm, I'm helping you see something about yourself that you're not actually seeing right now. In the, old, in, the, in the words of an old Rich Mullins song, he writes, We are frail, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. He, Mullins is laying out this complexity of, of human being. And with these, our hells and heavens, so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. That line comes back to me so often. Oh, Lord, I am awfully small and not as strong as I think I am. We are not as strong as we think we are. And I think that's part of what Jesus is helping Peter to see. This is what Peter would eventually come to see. He's hot one minute, professing his undying love for Jesus, swinging a sword at a guy who's coming to arrest Jesus. And the next minute, he's cowering before a little girl in the dark, unable to even admit that he's a follower of Jesus. Hot and cold in a matter of hours. Now, let's go back to that scene. It's dark. It's cold outside. Peter's standing outside the door. John talks the servant girl into letting Peter come in, but she opens the door, and uh, she, she recognizes him. It's dark, so she's not sure. Uh, she, he asks, she, she asks him the question, you're not one of these uh, followers too, are you? And John says, no, I am not. Now, if you put yourself in his shoes, remember... As I mentioned, he's the one that had just cut the ear off of one of the servants of the high priest. Now, I'm sure that news spread pretty fast. In fact, in just a little while, someone's actually going to bring that up. So we know the news did spread fast. But I imagine what, what guilt and fear might have been at play in Peter's heart and mind in that moment. You know, think about it. If, he, if I admit that I'm a disciple of Jesus, I might be pushing my luck. I might get thrown back out. John just did me this favor to get me in. Am I going to jeopardize that and get, risk getting thrown out? You, you know, uh, if he lets me in, what if the girl tells the high priest that this isn't just one of John's innocent friends? This is one of Jesus's followers, too. Well, now the, the more heads would turn and fingers would start pointing and it would just be a matter of time before multiple witnesses confirmed that he was the bold, rash, zealous one who swung a sword at someone in the garden. His cover would be blown and he'd miss the whole thing or worse, he'd be arrested, possibly tried and killed as well. These are the things maybe running through his mind as the girl asked him, are you one of his disciples? So... He's having to make a split-second decision. Does he admit that he's one of the followers? Or does he play dumb and act like he has no idea what she's talking about? His answer, we can see, is no, I am not one of his disciples. 
the first denial. Now, what's one white lie he might be telling himself? I mean, after all, I didn't say I'm not a Christian at all. I just said I'm not one of his disciples. But I had to say that to get in, right? I mean, after all, maybe God wanted me to get in. Maybe God's going to use me around this campfire. Maybe I need to be close by in case things get out of hand and I need to defend Jesus again. Maybe this is my chance to be the hero I've always wanted to be. After all, if I'd told him the truth, I would have forfeited that opportunity. I had to say what I said. But I'll show them my true colors eventually, just like I did in the garden. They'll see that I am bold and zealous and courageous. But, oh man, isn't that how sin and compromise often starts? It's one small step in the wrong direction. And if, if this is the right direction, and we take one small step in the wrong direction, the right directions, it's just right there. It's not that far off, but it's altering the trajectory of where you're headed. It doesn't seem dangerous at first. I'll be fine, we tell ourselves. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man fi carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? But that's the deceptive nature of sin. We believe that lie that we will be fine. And so we give in. But each time we give in, as Peter found out, the easier it is to give in the next time. And the time after that. And the third and the fourth and the four, four thousandth. And that's how the enemy sabotages our soul. And that's exactly the direction that it went for Peter. And it, ha it happened three times. The first time it was the servant girl. The second time it was someone in the crowd of people standing around the fire asking the same question the girl did. The third time, if you look at verse 26, it says, One of the servants of the high priest, relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? It was someone who was there in the garden when they came to arrest Jesus. And in fact, it, we're told it was a relative of the guy who got his ear chopped off. All three times, Peter denies it. He failed to live up to what he professed. And worse, given the context, he failed Jesus at Jesus' darkest moment up to this point. He had been... Professing one thing and confident one moment, and the next thing you know, under pressure, he collapses. Now, I hope we can just find ourselves in that. It's so easy to do. Maybe you've heard the story of Thomas Edison and the light bulb. I feel like it's been told a lot, so bear with me if you've heard it, and don't give this, don't do a spoiler if you, if you but. Thomas Edison, it took Edison and an, and an entire team of men around 24 working hours to create just one light bulb. And once that first light bulb was created, Edison called a young man over whose task was to carry the light bulb up the steps to another section of the workshop. So the young man takes the bulb, this invention of great value that took a lot of work to make, and he carefully carries it up the steps, one step at a time, making sure he doesn't drop the bulb. And as he gets to the top of the steps, the pressure is more than he can bear, his hands are shaking, and tragically, he drops the, ball, the bulb, and it shatters to pieces. Similar to what Peter 
what happened to Peter. Peter had been entrusted with the privilege of following Jesus. He even confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And it was on that confession, as well as Peter's life, that Jesus said he would build his church. But here in Jesus' darkest hour, Peter fumbles the light bulb that he'd been given, and he drops it. We are not as strong as we think we are, right? Let's bring that into our own lives. How do we deny Christ? How does denying Christ show up in your own life? For most of us, it doesn't happen exactly the way it did for Peter. Are you a Christian? No, I am not. That's not usually the conversations we're having, right? But it does show up anytime that we don't let the realities of the gospel and the mercy that we've been shown as sinners shape how we live. That is an inadvertent denial. It's easy for the gospel we profess to never impact how we think about our work, for example, our jobs, our parenting, our families, our interactions with other people. If we compartmentalize, for example, our work and our Christianity, we are in a sense denying Christ. So is Christ Lord over your work? What about your parenting? What about interactions with people you don't know? Or your interactions with people you're most comfortable with? When we, that's often when we let our guard down the most. It's easy to deny Christ in the sense that my identity as a Christian is not coming to bear in these relationships and in these interactions with people, in this situation. Those are subtle ways that denying Christ can show up in our lives. Um... Uh, the temptation for me, it, shows up, it can show up in the smallest of ways. Um, telemarketers that I think, I don't have time to share the gospel with them, so why does it matter if I'm rude? And I just want to say, shut up and don't call me again. Don't you know this tactic does not work? And I can be rude to them. One time we had a door-to-door salesman come by, and he came by over and over and over, and the initial um, undiscussed family strategy was to not answer the door. And then eventually uh, I got tired and went out and told him, we haven't answered the door because we're not interested, so please don't come back. Um, And I didn't say it that nicely. But reflecting back on it, what does it mean to deny Christ? So I don't think the answer, I mean, the answer may be go out and share the gospel with that guy, and I want to be open to that, but I'm talking about the subtleties of our own hearts. In that moment, the reality that I'm a forgiven sinner was not informing the the tone and the attitude and the reaction that I have to people who, in my mind, what I'm implying is they don't matter to me. See, gospel realities are not informing how I portray Christ. And when that's taken place, in a sense, I'm, I'm denying Christ. See, being with Jesus should shape should produce a certain kind of witness. And when we become aware of how we failed, and we did talk about that as a family, um, and the Lord used my wife to help me see uh, that I was not portraying Christ to that young man on my front porch. So what do we do? You know, if we're not casting ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, oh man, the pressure to not deny Christ can become a crippling burden, actually. 
We need to cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. Sometimes we can feel the weight of expectations that others place on us. Maybe Peter was feeling that in the moment. We can feel that weight and we can be aware of our failure to live up to other people's expectations. We may even live under the constant pressure that as Christians, we are being more closely scrutinized than others. That's true, isn't it? I mean, even in the church, we can feel that scrutiny of others in our marriage, in our parenting, in our evangelism, in our relationships in the church. But the reality is we will never perfectly live out everything we're called to. There will be times when we all fail because we are not as strong as we think we are. In fact, James 3, 2 reminds us, for we all stumble in many ways. So the real question is, as we come to Peter's story, what do we do when we stumble and fall and fail? What do we do? Where do we turn in those moments? What do we do when we fail in our witness? How do we respond? Where do we turn? Well, we see where Peter turned. He hid himself among the crowd. Peter felt the soothing lure of withdrawal in that moment. It's just easier and more comfortable and safer to withdraw and not put myself out there again only to get smashed down. So he withdrew. Is withdrawal your MO when you failed? What do you turn to when you fail? We can also say that Peter warmed himself by the fire alongside the enemies of Christ. That's who was there. Where do you warm yourself, so to speak, when you failed? Maybe it's entertainment or food or alcohol or other forms of escape. Other things that just the same way that Peter escaped into the crowd, hoping to be noticed, warming himself, hoping nobody sees him or talks to him. What other escapes do you go to that seeking to warm your own heart in the midst of your own failure? Because any other escape, any other substitute is not going to bring the, the warmth that the fires of Jesus will bring to your heart because that's what you really need. That's what we need when we failed. But so often we look to other things. We can even recall, for example, our own successes in the midst of our failure. Well, I failed there, but think about all the good things I did before this. You know, is Peter standing there doing that? Yeah, I denied him, but... Man, that was pretty cool when I swung that sword at that guy. That man took a stand. Oh, yeah, that time I said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I said that. That's right. Is he soothing his own heart with his own successes? That's not what we're called to do either. That's often how we counsel one another. Somebody comes in and says, I've failed. And I feel condemned and miserable. And we say, yeah, but look, look at all these good things you've done. Is that applying the gospel to our failures? That's not. You know what we want to be doing? Yes, you failed. But look at the things that Christ has done. Look what he's done for you on your behalf. And that's where we're going to get to in point two. We don't weigh our goods and our bads to make ourselves feel better when we failed. We look to the all-sufficiency of Jesus, who is everything we are not and is everything that we need. And we cast ourselves on his mercy. We don't find comfort in our own achievements and successes as though they might outweigh the bad we've done. No, before God, we are still helpless and hopeless apart from Jesus. So we cast ourselves on his mercy. So the effect this story should have on us is not to condemn us for all the ways we deny Jesus, but it should actually free us to be honest with our failures so that from that place of weakness, 
We can cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. See, this message isn't first and foremost about taking a stand for Jesus. Although we should do that. Yes, we should do that. But it's about where do we turn? Where do we go? What do we do when we failed to be and do what God calls us to do and to be? It's a call to look to Jesus in our failure and in our sin and cast ourselves on his mercy. That's why John interrupts Peter's denials by directing our attention to none other than Jesus. Because we need to see just how opposite Jesus is, which is why he's the only one we should ever turn to. So point number two, the steady and courageous witness of Jesus. Look at verse 19 with me, please. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I've said nothing in secret. Here, Jesus is being questioned by the high priest about his teaching. And he, he replies, I've, I've been open about everything. Note the contrast. Peter was questioned. Jesus was questioned. Peter denies everything. Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. And then Jesus further incriminates himself by telling the high priest just how open he's been. I've been teaching in the synagogues and temples where all the Jews come together. Now, telling that to the high priest is kind of like telling him, and where have you been all this time? Nothing's been said in secret. Jesus, knowing full well what this type of answer would lead to, doesn't even hesitate when he's questioned, but is steady and courageous. Now, what happens in verse 21 to 23 is yet another challenge to the high priest. According to Jewish law, it's not the defendant that would be directly questioned, but the defendant's witnesses. So when Jesus says in verse 21, why are you asking me? You should ask my witnesses what I said. They could tell you. Jesus was basically pointing out to the priest that you're not following procedure like you should be. That's why the officer gets up and slaps him in the face. And then Jesus replies, look at verse 23. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus is basically asking for a fair trial, which of course they're not going to give him. But throughout his questioning, his witness, unlike Peter's, is just steady and courageous. And John's drawing our attention to that, so we don't want to miss that. He is succeeding exactly where Peter failed. And here's the astounding part. Who is he doing that for, if none other than Peter, who just denied him? That's the point of knitting these passages together, that in the middle of Peter's denials, we see Jesus reigning over every detail of the situation, not cowering in fear, but boldly testifying to the message he's been proclaiming all along. So the point is not to show us the the great... The point is to show us the great contrast between Jesus and Peter, where Peter buckles under pressure, Jesus triumphantly proclaims the truth to the high priest and doesn't deny a thing. In the middle of Peter's dismal failure and unfulfilled promises, Christ stands and testifies to the truth. And let's not forget where and when all of this is happening. It's on the way to the cross where he is going to die for sinners. So uh, to, to say it even more succinctly, the triumphant Christ is found in the middle of Peter's failing faith. That should be good news for us. 
The triumph in Christ can be found in the middle of our failing faith, can it not? Yes, Peter was faithless. Yes, we are faithless. But while Peter was busy being faithful, faithless, Christ was busy being faithful for all the faithless Peters like you and me. And because he faithfully went to the cross and did not shrink back like Peter did and the others, there's hope for us in our failures when we fail to stand, when we deny Christ. That's why we look to him. That's why we cast ourselves on his mercy. So to summarize what we see, number one, Jesus does not shrink back, but he boldly proclaims the truth. We see that very clearly, set in contrast to Peter who shrinks back and denies him. Second, this is an amazing little literary device that John is using And it's not just John, it's the actual situation. But Jesus is the true and final high priest who mediates God's grace to God's people, not by bringing a sacrifice, but by being the very sacrifice himself. So note the irony. The high priest who's supposed to mediate God's presence, who's supposed to bring a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people, is the one questioning the true high priest who doesn't bring the sacrifice, but who himself once for all will be the sacrifice in the laying down of his own life. And we see by those two characters in the story, okay, this one bears a title, but who's the real high priest? It's Jesus who will go to the cross in just a few hours as the sacrificial lamb at the time of Passover, making atonement for, his, for our sins by dying on the cross on our behalf as our substitute. He is the true and final pre, high priest. At point number three, he's the sacrificial lamb of, of Isaiah 53, 7, who is led to the slaughter. We see this language in, in verse 12 and again in verse 27 that... Uh, or I'm sorry, in verse 24, of Jesus being bound. He, he's, he's bound and led to first this guy, Annas, and then he's questioned, he's slapped in the face. He's bound and led to Caiaphas for more questioning. It's this picture of the sacrificial lamb being led to the slaughter that Jesus would be when he dies on the cross. So what do we make of all this? <clears throat> Jesus is standing here, Standing in our place, triumphing where we failed, being everything that we failed to be. So what is that? It's an invitation for weak, failing sinners to cast themselves on his mercy because where we are weak, he is strong. And if you've professed faith in Jesus, if you're saved, he has already worked in your salvation and he's working even now to bring about his good purposes, even when it doesn't feel like it and even when it mostly feels like failure and setback, just like it must have for Peter. Think about it in just a few hours. It won't just be a slap in his face or hands bound by ropes or chains. But his beard would be ripped out. His back would be brutally beaten. His hands and feet and side would be pierced through. And he would hang suspended between heaven and earth to rescue weak, failing sinners like Peter and like you and me. That's where all of this is headed. See, they're not, John isn't writing this in one week increments like we're experiencing it in the sermon. This is all on the path to Calvary. It's all where all of this is all headed. And for Peter, oh, for Peter, the best is yet to come. Because in Christ, failure does not have to have the last word. 
I know we're not in John 21, but I just have to mention it briefly. Here in John 21, we see another Peter, another morning, another fire. But this Peter has been broken by his own failure. This morning is the dawn of the new covenant. Jesus is cooking breakfast with his friends at this fire. And what's clear is that Jesus has loved Peter through all of this. He has forgiven Peter. His death on the cross secured Peter's full acceptance before God the Father. But as good as all of that was, it didn't stop there, did it? Jesus didn't just forgive Peter, but in his forgiveness, he turns to Peter and and trusts this weak, failing Peter with the glorious task of feeding Christ's sheep. Do you realize The people that get commissioned for gospel service are not the strong and mighty, but the weak and lowly. God's not going to start using you as soon as you get strong enough to be used by him. No, that's in fact our problem. Often our problem is that we are not weak enough to be used by God. We're too strong and mighty in our own strength. Like Peter, we're strong in ourselves. We think wrongly that our acceptance before God, our usefulness in God's hands, rises and falls with our spiritual performance. But we've got the gospel all wrong when we do that. Jesus knows what we need is his full and complete righteousness. Jesus knows that the the most extraordinary things that get accomplished for the kingdom come through weak vessels who acknowledge their own weakness, who cast themselves on the mercy of Jesus and say, God, in my weakness, use me, accomplish more than I can accomplish in my own weakness. And Jesus knows what we need and everything that we need is found in him. It's not found in ourselves. It's not found in talking positive. Positivity to ourselves is not found in manifesting some future that we hope to one day produce. It's found in casting ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. And that reality reinterprets all of our failings, doesn't it? It must reinterpret our failings. It, it frees us from the pressure to be strong and mighty, but to bring our weakness to Jesus and say, God, make something extraordinary out of this weakness. That's exactly what he did with Peter. As one Sovereign Grace song says, it's been a few years since we've sung it, but oh Lord, you've shown us mercy. Sinners are washed as saints. You've shown your loving kindness. And in this phrase, sons of disgrace are righteous made. I think Peter would have loved that line. I am a son of disgrace who's been made righteous by the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. Great God-wrought strength truly can be found, not in our own power and strength, but along the path of weakness. So, will you cast yourself on His mercy today? This is not something we do passively. This is something that cannot be assumed if you've not cast yourself fully on the mercy of Jesus before, perhaps you've been trusting in other things, this is an invitation by Jesus to say, you will continue to fail. You will continue to not keep the promises you made to God. And you need a righteousness that comes completely outside of yourself. 
And as I died on the cross, I secured that righteousness for all who would come to me by faith and cast themselves into my arms, helpless, hopeless, recognizing I can't do anything of my, on my own and in my own righteousness, in my own power. And you could turn from sin and cast yourselves into the arms of Jesus and he will have you, he will receive you, he will save you. He will welcome you into his family. You will experience the grace and mercy that Peter got to experience as a guy who failed and faltered and stumbled every step of the way who God then turned around and used to build his church and to build his kingdom. God works through those kinds of people who acknowledge and admit their total helplessness, their depravity, their sin, their deserving of wrath. They, they admit that before God and say, God, what else can I do? Save me. I have no other hope. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So you can turn to him today and I invite you to do that. And for those of us who are believers, who consider ourselves Christians, this reality of his mercy and casting ourselves consciously on his mercy is not something we can afford to assume. If we're not consciously confessing our dependence on his mercy, we will be inevitably warming ourselves at the fire of some alternative. But Jesus, picture him holding out nail-scarred hands today for any Peters who deny him and fail him. Because even when we are faithless, Christ remains faithful to forgive and restore. But it's not just that. He also commissions and empowers us to go in weakness to testify to all that he's done for us. In fact, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, very often... God uses the actual weakness to accomplish extraordinary things in such a way that unmistakably brings him glory. See, if we can accomplish things in our own strength, then it's easy for the glory to get directed towards us. But when we come before God in weakness and say, God, I'm, I'm weak, I'm helpless, I'm failing, I don't know what to do in this ministry I lead, with this child I'm trying to parent, with this spouse that I'm fighting with, with this boss that I can't stand to work on, I don't know what to do, I'm helpless. And we cast ourselves on his mercy, it's, that, it's in that weakness that God will come forth and shine and show himself to be strong and mighty. He meets us in the place of weakness. He is faithful when we are not. He is everything that we are not and need to be. And that's why we cast ourselves on that mercy. Now, Joshua, you can come up and close us in a song as he's coming. After the young man failed with the light bulb and the one task he'd been given and he dropped this precious light bulb that a team of men took 24 hours to create, the second light bulb had been painstakingly and tediously built all over again. This time, Edison found the young man and said, hey, I want you to carry this up the steps to that section of the workshop. This time, the young man, humbled by the forgiveness he'd been shown, sobered by the task, entrusted to his wobbly and weak hands, he faithfully carried that light bulb up the steps without dropping it. But the grace of God, again, is even better than that. It's not just that we've been entrusted with something. But the grace of God forgives us in our failures and entrusts us with the gospel and empowers us to actually preserve it and pass it on. And we can do this with confidence because Jesus is everything we're not. He's everything that we need.
so we can trust him for his power. And even if we fail, we can cast ourselves on his mercy again and again. And he will be faithful even when we're not. Let's stand together. Oh Lord, we thank you for this faithfulness. Thank you that we can read passages like Peter, that the Bible is not just filled with stories of great heroes who just accomplish great things and leave us feeling like, well, sure, I would like to do that someday. But it's, it's raw, it's honest. We see Peter fail. We see him deny you. We see him discouraged. We see him hiding. And Lord, so often we find ourselves there. It's in those moments, Lord, we, we want you to help us look to you We want to hear your voice calling us, lifting our eyes to see you afresh in the preaching of your word, in the glory of your scriptures, in the songs we sing, in the faces and encouragements of other believers as we gather, in the the grace and glory that the gathered church is for us. It's another means by which we can look to Jesus so that we might cast ourselves upon him. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, where we've forgotten, where we maybe have assumed your mercy. May we consciously today confess and say, oh, Lord, I need your mercy. I've failed in all these different ways. How I need you. Let's look to him now.